0: Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast, where we can finally say 16 months later that the Democratic presidential primary is officially over. I'm Alex Rorty, a political correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you from my home in Washington as we maintain the appropriate social distancing protocols. And today, I'm joined by Adam Walter, politics editor at the McClatchy D.C. Bureau, and someone from whom I received a series of increasingly frantic G-chats, texts, and phone calls yesterday after Bernie Sanders abruptly ended his campaign. Adam, welcome to the show as always.
1: Alex, you know, I appreciate your, your quick responses to, to those as always. Definitely, I think, caught all of us a little off guard yesterday. I think we had kind of anticipated he was just going to kind of stay in it for, for a while, but obviously decided to, to cut things short,
0: and I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that today. I think we Just might. Uh, And of course, we are also happy to have back on the show David Cadneys, a political correspondent for McClatchy, who, like Adam and I, is holed up in Washington waiting for the pandemic to pass, hopefully with a bottle of wine or six sitting in reserve. Dave, welcome.
2: Good to be with you. I have a drink in hand, but I will not
0: reveal the contents of it at this time. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little pre show discussion about that drink. (laughs) Okay. On today's episode, we will discuss whether the now de facto Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, can have a better time of it with his party's left flank than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. And we'll ask if the former VP's number one surrogate-in-waiting, Barack Obama, can really make a difference in this election. But first, let's talk about Bernie. The Vermont senator ended his candidacy Wednesday, saying in an announcement that although his movement will go on, his campaign will not. This news was a long time coming, obviously. Bernie's campaign effectively ended almost exactly a month ago, the day he lost Michigan on March 10th. Wow, that feels like a long time ago. Uh, But it was still a day of mourning for many on the left, many of whom really, truly believed that only a few months ago that Sanders really was about to win this race. So as we look back on Bernie's legacy, Adam, here's my question for you, because it's, it's a point that many progressives are making this week that the left might have lost the battle this year, but they're still going to win the war within the Democratic Party. What's the argument, and do they have a point? Yeah, I mean, I think they absolutely
1: have a point. I mean, I think you know you can very clearly argue that they did not win the, the battle this time around, obviously, and they haven't really won it. You know, the past couple cycles now uh, with Bernie Sanders falling short in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, and then once again against Joe Biden. But in terms of sort of the, the bigger picture about where this kind of ideological battle stands within the party, I don't know if you can definitively say that you know the Bernie wing is winning or you know the Biden are more centrist wing is winning because, you know, I think there are, are good arguments to be had on both sides. And I think, you know, each wing of the party can, can certainly claim varying levels of success. You know, on the one hand, yeah, you know, Bernie Sanders is not going to be the presidential nominee. You know, he was the, the most progressive candidate in this field, self-described democratic socialist, was not able to expand his base beyond those very young, very liberal. And uh, particularly in 2020, a lot of Latino voters, especially out West, who are kind of his most fervent supporters, he was just never able to, to turn that plurality into the, the majority that you need and wasn't able to make inroads with key constituencies within the Democratic Party. But if you look at where the Democratic Party stands today versus where it did four years ago, I mean, it, it's undoubtedly much farther to to the left. Now, obviously, everyone hasn't quite gotten all the way to, to Bernie's side of things. But I mean, just take a look at Joe Biden's policy platform. And Alex, you know, you did this in a story last fall already. I mean, he is, you know, undoubtedly the most progressive you know, nominee that, that you know, arguably Democrats have ever had. I mean, he's moved his agenda, yes. in, in terms of his in terms of his policy agenda, right? I mean, just you know, just you know, if you're just comparing, you know, line by line, you know, it's what Hillary Clinton ran on in 2016 in terms of climate change, health care, the environment. You know, you can kind of go down the list, and certainly you've seen that happen in the halls of Congress as well. You know, just the, the types of policies that Democrats have been pushing are certainly much further to the left. Now they haven't you know gotten all the way again to, to Bernie's side, and you know, kind of that. That center-left, more establishment wing within the party is still is sort of what is um, holding the most sway, but without a doubt, those figures are much more progressive than they were four or eight years ago. So I think long-term, they certainly have a lot of promise. And I know you know one of the point a lot of progressives made in the story that you wrote yesterday, Alex, is that Bernie Sanders is inspiring a lot of these younger progressives to get more involved in the political system to run for office. You know that's going to pay dividends down the road when they have more of a pipeline of not just city. Council members and mayors in in cities, but you know they have members of Congress, they have senators, they have governors who who can then run for president down the road. So I think in terms, you know, if you, if you take the, the very long view, there's a lot that progressives can be positive about it as they see just sort of. Gradually, how the Democratic Party shifted to the left, but in terms of short-term gains, it's obvious that they are still not the ones that are sort of calling the shots within the party.
0: Yeah, I mean, hard to be too optimistic after their champion just lost, and not just lost, but lost badly, to a a guy who, agenda aside, his profile and his background is decidedly center-left. Yeah, I mean, their argument boils down to it. Demographics, that the young people who believe in Bernie's vision for the country will make up a larger and larger portion of the party. It is about policy, which, as you just discussed aptly, is, is really shifting significantly to the left and it's about this bench of progressive leaders who in the coming decades can start running for Senate, start running for governor and maybe have a better platform from which to launch a presidential campaign, maybe just maybe not as a 78 year old senator from Vermont, maybe a little bit more politically feasible for them. So, Dave, all that said, we are journalists. We try to scrutinize everything. And I got to say that this seems ripe for for scrutiny and, and counter argument here. So maybe take the other side of this. Why is there less reason, you think, for for their optimism? or maybe they shouldn't be quite as optimistic as at least they say on the record that they are.
2: Well, I just think by looking at the numbers, Bernie only represents about a quarter to a third of the party. And I think that was demonstrated through, you know, primary after primary, even, you know, when it got down to him versus Biden in a lot of these states it wasn't close this we weren't talking about margin of error races in a lot of the big states I mean Biden was racking up double-digit victories in big states, in states that Bernie Sanders did much better in against Hillary Clinton. And I think a lot of that success now, we look back in hindsight in 2016, was about who his opponent was in 2016. I mean, Michigan's the prime example about how well he did there against Hillary, Versus how he did against Biden, where he got crushed across the board. So I think like, look, progressives can argue they are driving the debate. Um, we discussed this a lot during the campaign. You know, all these candidates, whether it be Kamala Harris or Kristen Gillibrand or Cory Booker, had to answer for Medicare for all and they got tangled up in it. And look, that debate doesn't happen if Bernie Sanders hadn't run for president against Hillary Clinton in 2016. He is driving the debate, but he's not winning the debate. And I even think you see in the future progressive leaders are sort of taking note of this. If you look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her comments in the recent weeks about the future of the left, she has been, I wouldn't say critical, but I think she's put a more analytical lens on what has to happen for them to be electorally successful in the future. And she has said, look, maybe it's not all about conflict. Sometimes we're too harsh. Sometimes we're more about the fight than the outcome. So I think there's a reckoning that's going to happen with progressive leaders after they get out of this period where they're certainly going to pressure Joe Biden. And I think that's going to be an important factor in, in their purpose in this presidential race. But let me let's look to 2024. How does someone from the progressive left run and win. I think they're going to have to do a tough autopsy on Bernie and the limitations of Bernie and what they need to do to really recalibrate a progressive platform into a winning platform because
0: it just hasn't proven out yet. Dave, let me ask you this question. I mean, do you think that—let's let, go to 2024. Let's just stipulate in this scenario that Biden loses. Democrats have another primary in four years. Do you think that a candidate would be able to win if they just adopted Bernie's agenda to the letter? Let's just say to the letter, but then right. tweaked I, a few things when it came to rhetoric. Maybe they didn't talk about revolution so much. Maybe they didn't run as a 78-year-old. Maybe they're 48 <laughs> instead. Things that in the way I think we think might help. But would that be enough? Or does the policy need to come back a little bit too?
2: I think the policy probably needs to be curtailed. I think someone can look better than Bernie and be smoother and suave suaver, but then you're going to have some people that, that are Bernie hardcores that, that think that that looks too blow-dried. And, right, and not, not authentic, right? Yeah, like inauthentic, right, exactly. So if there's a seesaw effect to all of this, if, if you get someone a little bit better at the politics, will they pick up more people in the middle but lose the hardcore? Like, yeah. I think, you know, the, the issues do make matter. And I think when people piled them up and saw a Green New Deal, free college, free health care, a job guarantee, a $15 minimum, they're like, this is just too much. It's too much. And America's not going to be able to do it. And it's not going to get through the Senate. And it's unrealistic. And I think, you know, the sheer size of Bernie's agenda was, was part of the problem. I do think substance was part of the problem.
0: You know, Adam, so much of this debate over how much the Democratic Party is moving to the left seems to center on Medicare for all and a single-payer health care system. And I mm-hmm. see it as an issue that, I mean, really is the pivotal wedge issue for now, at least within the Democratic Party. My question to you on this question of how much progress and how quickly the, the left can move within the Democratic Party, do you think that it's possible that the party could have a nominee in 2024, or let's say 2028, who does embrace a full-fledged single-payer system? Because to me, that's a way to look at this this argument and how much the party has shifted because that, that yeah. is and that is the big litmus test like I was saying
1: yeah I mean I, I mean I definitely think you know it, it's a possibility I guess you know what, you know one thing to consider with that is like is, is the Democratic Party really going to continue to to litigate health care election <laughs> election after election right I mean this is something we've hit throughout the, the primary is that like you know obviously you know healthcare care has always been a huge discussion within the Democratic Party how to get health care reform done you know they finally do it with with uh, Barack Obama and pl- and certainly pay a political price and all of a sudden you know the, the you know that's really what what the primary was all about like you know how do we you know go beyond what what Obamacare has done so we'll, we'll see how much of an appetite there is within the larger Democratic Party uh, f- you know for that in, in 2024 2028 I mean certainly the Bernie wing is going to continue to push that but I do think you know it, you know getting a majority opinion on that is going to be tough because who you know is not embracing that kind of argument and who has Bernie Sanders really struggled with the most in six. 16- 16 and in 20. You know, it's largely black voters and older voters. And guess what? That that makes up a huge slice of the Democratic electorate. I think all of us being on, on the road, you know, these past 16 months talking to these types of voters, you know, they, they just don't think that that, you know, you know maybe they're, they're open to it, but they don't necessarily think that should be the priority or that's what people should be focusing on because they have more kind of immediate day-to-day needs, both in terms of health care and other issues that are directly affecting their lives. So, you know, I, I certainly think it's a possibility, but I think that, you know, we may be looking, you know, even, you know, a few more cycles down the road road Until we get to a presidential nominee who, who's sort of fully embracing a, a, a single payer system, even you know, e- again, I think this is just kind of gets to how you know progressive gains, you know, kind of in recent cycles have sort of come gradually, right? You know, they are just kind of slowly moving that that Overton window. You know, as, as a lot of <laughs> I feel them like, like to say some kind of penalty, penalty for using um, the term, you know, whether but
0: that's, that's that's okay, we'll we'll, we'll look past it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's true, and it is you know in large part what they're doing. So will that be moved far enough in four or eight years where? you know, single-payer healthcare becomes sort of like, you know, the, the default policy platform of the Democratic Party. I'm not so sure. But they can, you know, certainly, you know, at the very least, I think they're going to c- continue to put, you know, sort of these, you know, younger progressive candidates who are aligned with Bernie Sanders in some of these safer congressional seats. You know, that's something they did successfully in, in 2018. You know, AOC is a prime example of that. And I think that's how they can, can sort of uh, continue to influence this debate. But the question is, yeah, you know, when, when do they become the majority? When are they the ones that actually come on top and win these debates? You know, Know, rather than just influencing them, yeah, or one even last driving out
0: on this, I mean, I think obviously the, one of the questions in future presidential primaries is whether there will be a Bernie-like figure who can consolidate all of the hard left in the party, or whether or not, in, in the absence of such a candidate, that someone like, let's just say, Cory Booker, or another, you know, liberal but not exactly a Bernie-type Democratic socialist, can consolidate at least a chunk of that left, and then combine it with a more mainstream Democratic audience, or maybe a, 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 an African American electorate, whether or not obviously. Honestly, that depends a lot on the composition and we're not even going to begin to speculate on who will be running for president and future democratic presidential primaries that's next week's show all right <laughs> dave you flicked at this earlier and I, and I want to talk about it now look joe biden won this primary he defeated the left as you said it was a resounding victory that said moving forward for his campaign this is a, a candidate and a candidacy that is always going to have to think about its left flank always going to think about how to, to try to reach out to people on the left to to make sure that they vote for him in November, that they don't vote for Donald Trump, or I think more realistically just don't vote at all. In other words, that he doesn't have some of the same problems that Hillary Clinton had in in 2016. Now I read your story, it was a great piece, uh, really kind of diving into this issue. And one of the things I heard was, oh, you know, I I got a vibe. Tell me if I'm wrong that, well, you know, we've learned from the mistakes of of the past and we're going to do it better this time. I feel like that's something a lot of campaigns say or something that they always say after a previous failure. My question to you is, have they learned those lessons? Do you think that they'll be able to do a better job than Hillary Clinton?
2: Look, I mean, it would be malpractice if they hadn't learned the lessons. I think that is clear. Um, You know. Whether they're actually going to be able to do better than Hillary Clinton is is the question that I tried to explore, and you know we won't really know. I mean, campaigns always put the put the best face on all this stuff and and downplay it. We know the Biden campaign has sort of been under resourced and not as well organized, not as well staffed as other campaigns, and frankly, it hasn't hasn't caught up to them yet. Right? They've they've had pretty good success, but they did sort of you know they, they were willing to dive in and go through with it with me that they've been working on this and that they knew this was going to be an issue for a while now. And they think that they've got a better shot at this. They understand that there's always going to be a progressive part of the, of the left that is going to be antagonistic, Skeptical and may not be able to, to even pull the ballot for Biden, but they feel like that will be such a small percentage that largely resides on Twitter. And as one of their advisors told me yesterday, you know, if we ran our campaign based on Twitter, we probably wouldn't be where we are right now. So Look, they have been working on this, they told me, for over a month with working groups from college campuses all the way to outreach from surrogates and younger, they're they're stressing younger, progressive mayors, state representatives who lead the conversations with a lot of these third-party groups like the Sunrise Movement, March for Our Lives are the two that they cited that they've been having ongoing conversations with. And they say it's just about sort of grinding away at it every day. They're not going to agree on policy, on everything, but they feel like that there are areas where that there is overlap and that they can come to if not an agreement, you know, an understanding that he is moving in the right direction and trying to see ways where he can embrace their ideas. I mean, one area specifically they said they, they had been working on is climate change with climate groups and next generation, which was uh, actually Tom Steyer's old group before he ran for president and said that they are going to embrace a more robust position on environmental justice and how climate change more severely impacts minority communities, which is something that the left is pushing. Now, is he going to embrace the Green New Deal and their emission standards and the cuts that are proposed in that legislation? No, like Joe Biden is not going to go there. He is not going to come out and, and abolish ICE. You know, there are some things he's not going to move on, but it's about getting in a room and sort of being able to listen, they say, you know, just being open ears open eyes and saying, "Okay, we're not going to agree on this stuff, but this is where we can we can actually think about or we want to hear you out. And look, that goes a long way with with a lot of these people. It's not going to go, you know, with all of them. There are going to be holdouts. And, you know, just sitting on Twitter yesterday, you saw them, the never Biden folks. I could never vote for him no matter what. But, you know, this is a different election. Donald Trump is now president. And I think a, a lot of progressives realize this. They, they may not, Biden was never going to be their pick but it's about Donald Trump picking two more Supreme Court justices, right? It's about Donald Trump having four more years in, a, in overseeing maybe another health pandemic or something worse, you
0: know. I, sh- I really, like, shudder to think of something worse than, <laughs> I mean, well, than, they, than the current They're pandemic. thinking about that, it, that, believe that's me. That's a truly terrified thought, they're, but yes. They're, they're trying to think about it,
2: and I think part of it, I don't want to say it's completely a fear factor involved, but, you know, obviously that, that Donald Trump is now a president and not just, you know, a potential losing Republican nominee, that
0: makes it a lot more urgent for progressives across the board. And I want you to jump in here, and maybe if you could, Dave just touched on it, but people are naturally going to make a comparison to 2016 and Hillary Clinton. How do you think that the situations are similar? Because there obviously mm-hmm. are some similarities, but there are also some key differences uh, b- between the two. I'm really putting you on the spot with this question. <laughs> no, a- absolutely and
1: I think, you know, one of them is is obviously, you know, kind of the points that that Dave was just making. You know, I, you know, I definitely got just, you know, yesterday as as we were reporting out our stories and just kind of looking at all the reaction to it. I mean, I I got far less of a of a vibe of there being a significant chunk of Bernie or bust voters in 2020, you know, than there were in 2016 and I think the number one reason for that is again, you know, you know, Donald Trump isn't isn't this, you know, theoretical president anymore, right? He actually is president and progressives have seen, you know, what his policies have sort of meant for them over the past few years. So I think there's a greater sense of urgency to defeat him this time around just since you're actually removing him from office. And I think that, you know, as Dave outlined in his story, you know, I think, you know, the, the Biden campaign has, as you know, made this a big part of their effort, even in, in the past few weeks, you know, when Bernie was still a candidate, but it was clear that he didn't have much of a path forward, you know, both the, the behind the scenes courting that they did of the campaign and his allies, but also, you know, how he has, you know, publicly approach this race the the, the past few weeks, you know, being very, you know, deferential and, you know, to, to Bernie Sanders's campaign, you know, they were obviously took, they took a lot of pains to make it look as if, you know, they weren't pushing him out of the race or anything like that. But the other thing that I think you know Joe Biden has going for him that Hillary Clinton did not in twenty sixteen, and it's gonna be part of this balancing act he's gonna to have to do in the coming months, is he's also had a lot more success among more moderate and you know some of those sort of disillusioned Republicans for similar reasons, because those people have been been driven out, you know, of the Republican Party by by Trump's actions. You know, maybe they they kind of held their nose and voted for him in twenty sixteen because they didn't like either candidate and it was sort of you know trying to pick between the lesser of two evils, but now they've been you know driven been out of, of the party, you know, you know, I'm talking about voters that are particularly, um, you know, in the suburbs, you know, a little more affluent, uh, you know, obviously played a major role in helping Democrats win back the House in 2018. So I think for Joe Biden, he has to consider that as well, is that he's had a lot of success with those voters in the primary. He's going to need them in the general election and key battleground states. So, you know, where is that middle ground between making overtures to, to progressives, to Bernie Sanders supporters who aren't totally comfortable with him so that he can unite the party but without alienating some of those more moderate voters who aren't going to go for you know, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, all of those progressive policies we've been talking about. And I think it ultimately comes down to the, you know, whether you're a moderate uh, former Republican or you're as progressive as they come, uh, you know, diehard Bernie Sanders supporter, your number one goal is defeating Donald Trump. And I think that's going to be obviously the message that they're pushing is that we need to all come together. You know, we're not going to agree on
0: on everything but we all share one goal and that's you know removing this guy from office yeah I mean look in 2016, 2016- Bernie, if you'll remember, took his campaign all the way through California in June. Obviously, he's ending a couple of months sooner. I think that is a big you know, a help for Biden, particularly at this point um, where I think an ongoing campaign just lets some of those divisions fester, particularly, I think, for a lot of people and, and the, the very online left. And, and nobody is saying that this process has been rigged. At least there is not a critical mass of that criticism in the way that we saw in 2016. I don't think the DNC is going to be hacked this time around and people, their will, emails will emerge of people, you know, talking poorly of Bernie Sanders, everything that really helps stoke the divisions. Right. Yeah, in, yeah in there was, yeah, there was just so much bad
1: blood between those campaigns and that, that still is lingering to this day. Uh, you know, I think another point we should make, you know, if we had a, you know, a Hillary Clinton staffer on this podcast with us, I think they'd also say, you know, sexism is a major difference between 16 and 20. Just the fact that Hillary Clinton as a woman is being treated differently by Bernie Sanders based on maybe Joe Biden has been. But Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders actually seem to, you know, kind of like one one another for, for the most part, you know, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, always calls him a very decent guy. Which, you know, I, f- I feel like he could maybe offer him a a higher compliment than that <laughs> at this point. But, but for the Bernie David Sanders, said as much yesterday. Yeah, on Twitter, yeah. Although for Bernie know. Sanders, you know, giving out compliments to other politicians, maybe that's about as good as it gets. And, and you know, some of the reporting that's been done is that he likes him because Joe Biden was nice to him before he made it big, right? You know, it's it's easy to forget that even five years ago, Bernie Sanders was sort of a gadfly in the Senate and wasn't thought of very highly by his colleagues. But by all accounts, Joe Biden. And still treated him with respect, and uh, you know Bernie Sanders still remembers that to this day. So you know, you know that, that's obviously a, another key difference as well. Just sort of the relationship between these campaigns seems to be a lot more positive, and I think that's another big reason why Bernie Sanders got out a couple months earlier than than he did in, in 2016.
2: I'd also say the fact that the coronavirus. Has now just yes, taken right. over our entire yeah, lives. Make all these other <laughs> issues seem less urgent, less important. Totally. You know, not to every activist on the left. They're still going to say, "Oh, if we had Medicare for all, this, you know, we, we'd be in a better shot." But I just think the fact that this campaign has just been transformed into, for the foreseeable future, a single issue that that Americans care first and foremost about. I think that helps Biden unite the party in an odd way, almost in a perverse way, and gives him a better shot than if we were going to have a debate for another, you know, four months about the Green New Deal. We're not going to have that debate right now because people just want to see the curve being flattened and fewer people getting cases of coronavirus. That's going
0: to be the priority. Dave, let's let's just quickly touch on uh, our last subject here. You know, there is now obviously a widespread expectation that an endorsement from Barack Obama is forthcoming for Joe Biden. And obviously the, the two have a very close and personal relationship. You might have heard that from Biden once or twice during the Democratic primary. he might have mentioned his friendship with Barack. <laughs> You you might even be mistaken into thinking that Obama has
1: already endorsed him, uh, given how how prevalent uh, he was in some of his his ads and and stump speeches. And
0: and I think there was a fair bit of speculation online yesterday, uh, assuming that the endorsement is forthcoming, just how much can Obama help Joe Biden? I would point out, obviously, he is still enormously popular within the Democratic Party, as as happens with every president. I think after there's a little distance between their presidency and their post-presidency life, the greater that distance grows, the more time passes your approval tends to go up. I think that does probably happen with Barack Obama. So he is a generally popular figure in, in America right now and obviously has a, still a devoted following, maybe with some of the very voters who Joe Biden needs to turn out in November. All that said, every time that Obama has not been on the ballot and he's tried to help Democrats, it hasn't gone great. It didn't go great in 2010. It didn't go great in 2014. And it certainly didn't go great for Democrats in 2016. So that's my question for you. I mean, do you really think that Obama is a real asset, or is his contribution to Joe Biden going to be overhyped and overrated?
2: So I usually sit on the side of the ledger that thinks endorsements don't matter as much as they are hyped, although James Clyburn sort of proved my point wrong this year in South Carolina, but undoubtedly the most important endorsement in this primary are the Obamas, not just Barack, but Michelle. Yeah, I, would, I would put Michelle point. in there, too. I mean, I think good point. Um, just, you know, given the response to her book, I mean, she can give a stem winder speech that you could argue is sometimes more compelling than her husband. And frankly, just because, you know, black women are the core of the Democratic Party, they were, they were core to, to Biden's primary victory, I think both of them are will be helpful. I will say, though, in talking to folks yesterday... You know, there are people on the left that still don't love the Obama administration. And I think one issue that Biden will have to wrestle with, and that's been brought up to me in several conversations over the past couple weeks is deportations and the record amount of deportations that the Obama administration oversaw and conducted. And, you know, there's going to be there are going to be some storylines, you know, uh, also, you know, putting a caveat on where we are with coronavirus, I think, which will overwhelm all. There will be some storylines about, you know, Biden not getting too caught up in looking at Obama because Obama is the past. And a lot of people want Biden to project the future. I mean, this isn't this is a guy. In his 70s, that needs to look future forward. And if he's hanging on to Obama too much, it looks like a different era and it looks a little bit too much like coattails. And as you mentioned, you know, I think Obama's a singular force. He does really well by himself on the ballot. When he tries to help others, it hasn't worked that well. So, of course, you deploy Obama. Of course, you do the big rally. You put him in, you know, Philadelphia or Detroit um, or, you know, even Milwaukee. Yes, absolutely. But if I were the Biden campaign, I'd be a little careful about putting too many chips on the Obama card because there's a lot of voters that want to move past Obama and want to see Biden championing something more than just, you know, Obama-lite.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Dave. I and mean, I think Obama's legacy is complicated, not just for some on the left, but I think for some moderate or I should say persuadable voters, too. I mean, there are people who look back at the Obama years and saw a bad economy. Um, and even when the economy improved in the macro sense, their own personal finances, their own wages maybe didn't necessarily go up. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons, of course, you saw the Donald Trump won in the first place. So I couldn't agree with with you more. I think it's an asset, um, but I think it is probably going to be overhyped. And I, and I do think there is a real danger of Obama almost stealing the spotlight from Biden or or Biden just talking about running it back, you know, the way that the country was run from 2008 to 2016. You know, a lot of people, or I should say 2009 to 2017, a lot of people weren't especially enamored with that. You know, they might like Obama a lot personally, but they have real problems with the the actual effect of his his administration on the country. So it is going to be a, a, a tricky balance. Just one more quick point on that, because I think, you know, that just gets
1: to like another needle that Biden is going to have to thread here, because on the one hand, he is kind of campaigning in a, in a large sense on a return to normalcy, right? Like, let's go back in, in a certain way to things were before we got Trump, right? Think, you know Things weren't perfect, but they were a lot better than what we've had with this guy in office the past four years, right? That was a huge part of his pitch in the primary. And that's why he tied himself so closely to Obama. But again, a lot of Democrats don't think it's necessarily smart for him to try and run as a third Obama-Biden term, right? He needs to still project what a Biden presidency is going to look like. Yeah. So just again, it get, gets to that to that balance that, that you were talking about. How do you promise a a return to something while also looking ahead and, and having a forward-looking message is, is
0: a tricky thing to do. A return to the same old political status quo is not exactly the winning message, I think, that some that some Democrats Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Think, think it might be. And I think that is going to be one of the major challenges for, for Joe Biden. Okay. okay, let's move on to what is my favorite segment, uh, where David. and Adam are going to tell you, the listeners, something new, fresh, and original from their reporting notebook. Dave, you're up first.
2: I'm going to steal something that I saw via Twitter and our TV colleague Steve Kornacki pointed out that has sort of been an obsession of mine. This is the earliest the Democratic primary has ended since 2004. I've been sort of obsessed with the parallels between 2004 and 2020 for a while now. Obviously, Mm -hmm. 08. And 16 went all the way through June. This one were done in April. And if you look back at a lot of the predictions and a lot of what we were writing about last year about how this is going to be a long drug-out affair that could go to the convention didn't prove out. And I think the main reason is that what does 2004 have in common with 2020? It was the last time there was a Republican incumbent up for re-election, George W. Bush, and the threat of a second Bush term was at the forefront of of Democratic voters' minds. And I think that is the same case today with Donald Trump. That's why we got earlier primaries wrapped up and ready to go to the general election. 04 and the 2020 parallel. Joe Biden is John Kerry 2.0, right? Well, hopefully not if you're you're the Democrats, if you want (laughs) to... For the yeah. general election, but for the primary, yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right, Adam, what do you got? Well, you know, I wasn't going to go this entire podcast without bringing up Wisconsin. Unbelievable! <laughs> I didn't even want to joke about
0: it this time around.
1: But obviously, you know, there, there was the the mess of of the election that was held this week there, with you know lo- long lines and people having to, to to go out in public amid the coronavirus pandemic if they wanted to cast votes in person. But obviously, you know, a lot of voters decided to cast their ballots by mail, and this is something that operatives in both parties were watching this week as they, as we sort of look ahead to November and if we get to a, a place where, you know, the, you know, COVID-19 is still sort of looming over us, how this is going to affect turnout, you know, how this is going to change sort of the way that, that people vote uh, on a state by state basis. But one thing to consider, particularly as we move to this, you know, kind of voting by mail argument is that, you know, there are still a lot of holes that need to sort of be plugged if, if states decide to move to the system. And one of that is just voters simply not receiving the ballots that they requested. You look at, at some of the data that, that came out of Wisconsin this week, roughly 13,000 ballots uh, were requested in the weeks leading up to Tuesday's election, and voters just never received them. So that means by Tuesday, they either had to potentially put their, their health at risk to go to a polling place and wait in long lines to vote or just not vote at all. Now, obviously, you know, this makes a a small slice of the roughly 1.3 million absentee ballots that were sent out. But, you know, if we're talking in in battleground states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, these states were only decided by by a few thousand votes. So, you know, these these missing absentee ballots, you know, could ultimately, uh, you know, be a a difference maker uh, if we're we're talking about a, a general election here where more and more voters are deciding to cast their ballots by mail.
0: So mine is just a a quick point, or I should say a quick prediction, something that I think we're going to be talking about a lot over the next six months in this general election. Young voters of color, not just deciding not to to vote for Joe Biden and staying home, but possibly even voting for Donald Trump. And I really, and I should even specify it further, young men of color, it's a group that conservatives have pursued every election. It's something of a Lucy in the football situation for them where they will hype up their efforts uh, to win over these voters only to see on election day that they didn't really make any progress. There is some sense on both sides that it might be different, might be different this year and some action from both sides to, to effectuate that. Just something to, to watch out of prediction for you the uh, the listener. Okay. Uh, David, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show as always. Yeah, Absolutely. of course. Thanks. And I want to thank our producer Jeremy Sheeler. And- and our executive producer, Davin Cobert. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.